0: Section 35 of Great Men and Famous Women, Volume 1, by Charles F. Horn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Harrell. Great Men and Famous Women, Volume 1, by Charles F. Horn. Sir Walter Raleigh 1552 to 1618 Very little is known concerning the youth of Sir Walter Raleigh He was a younger son descended of an ancient family and was born at a farm called Hayes near the mouth of the river Otter in Devonshire in the year 1552 He went to Oriel College Oxford at an early age and gained high praise for the quickness and precocity of his talents. In 1569, he began his military career in the Civil Wars of France as a volunteer in the Protestant cause. It is conjectured that he remained in France for more than six years and returned to England in 1576. Soon after, he repaired to the Netherlands and served as a volunteer against the Spaniards. In such schools, and under such leaders as Coligny and the Prince of Orange, Raleigh's natural aptitude for political and military science received the best nurture, but he was soon drawn from the war in Holland by a pursuit which had captivated his imagination from an early age, the prosecution of discovery in the New World. In conjunction with his half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, a man of courage and ability, and a skillful sailor, he made an unsuccessful attempt to establish a colony in North America. Returning home in 1579, he immediately entered the Queen's army in Ireland and served with good esteem for personal courage and professional skill until the suppression of the rebellion in that country. He owed his introduction to court and the personal favor of Elizabeth, as is traditionally reported, to a fortunate and well-improved accident which is too familiar to need repetition here it is probable however that his name and talents were not unknown for we find him employed almost immediately in certain matters of diplomacy among the cares and pleasures of a courtier's life raleigh preserved his zeal for american discovery he applied his own resources to the fitting out of another expedition in fifteen eighty three under the command of sir humphrey gilbert which proved more unfortunate than the former one two out of five vessels returned home in consequence of sickness and two were wrecked including that in which the admiral sailed and the only result of the enterprise was the taking possession of newfoundland in the name of england still raleigh's desire for american adventure was not dampened the continent northward of the gulf of florida was at this time unknown. But Raleigh, upon careful study of the best authorities, had concluded that there was good reason for believing that a considerable tract of land did exist in that quarter, and with the assent of the Queen and Council, from whom he obtained letters patent, granting to himself and his heirs, under certain reservations, property in such countries as he should discover, with a right to provide for their protection and administration, he fitted out two ships, which sailed in April 1584. The first land which they made was an island named Ocacoke, running parallel to the coast of North Carolina. They were well received by the natives, and returned to England in the following autumn, highly pleased. Nor was less satisfaction felt by Raleigh, or even by the queen, who conferred on him the honor of knighthood, a title which was then in high esteem, inasmuch as it was bestowed by that wise princess with the most frugal and just discrimination she also gave him a very lucrative mark of favor in the shape of a patent for licensing the selling of wine throughout the kingdom and she directed that the new country in allusion to herself should be called virginia raleigh did not think it politic perhaps it was not allowed to quit the court to take charge in person of his undertaking and those to whom he entrusted the difficult task of directing the infant colony appeared to have been unequal to their office it is not necessary to pursue the history of an enterprise which proved unsuccessful and in which sir walter personally bore no share he showed his earnestness by fitting out several expeditions which must have been a heavy drain upon his fortune but he is said to have derived immense wealth from prices captured from the Spaniards. And we may here observe that the lavish magnificence in dress, especially in jewels, for which Raleigh was remarkable, even in the gorgeous court of Elizabeth, his state dress is said to have been enriched with jewels to the value of 60,000 pounds, may be considered less as an extravagance than as a safe and portable investment of treasure. A mind less active might have found employment more than enough in the variety of occupations which pressed upon it at home. He possessed a large estate, granted out of forfeited lands in Ireland. But this was always a source rather of expense than of profit, until in 1601 he sold it to the Earl of Cork. He was Seneschal of the duchies of Cornwall and Exeter, and held the wardenship of the Stanneries. And in 1586, as well as formerly in 1584, we find that he possessed a seat in Parliament. In 1587, the formidable preparation of the Spanish Armada withdrew the mind of Raleigh, as of all Englishmen, from objects of minor importance, to the defense of their country. He was a member of the Council of War, directed to prepare a general scheme of defense, and held the office of lieutenant-general of cornwall in addition to the charge of the isle of portland but as on this occasion he possessed no naval command he was not actively engaged in the destruction of that mighty armament in fifteen eighty nine he served as a volunteer in the expedition of norris and drake to portugal of which some account has been given in the life of the latter nor were his labors unrewarded even in that unfortunate enterprise for he captured several prizes and received the present of a gold chain from the queen in testimony of her approbation of his conduct soon after these events raleigh retired to his irish property being driven from court according to some authorities by the enmity of the earl of essex then a young man just rising into favor He there renewed a former intimacy with the poet Spencer, who, like himself, has been rewarded with a grant of land out of forfeited estates and then resided at Kilcoman Castle. Spencer has celebrated the return of his friend in the beautiful pastoral, Colin Clouts Come Home Again, and in that and various passages of his works has made honorable mention of the highly poetic spirit which enabled the shepherd of the ocean as he is there denominated, to appreciate the merit of the fairy queen, and led him to promote the publication of it by every means in his power. The loss of Raleigh's court favor, if such there were, could not have been of long duration on this occasion, but he incurred more serious displeasure in consequence of a private marriage contracted with Elizabeth Throgmorton, one of the queen's maids of honor, a lady of beauty and accomplishments, who proved her worth and fidelity in the long train of misfortunes which beset the latter years of raleigh's life in consequence of this intrigue he was committed to the tower one or two amusing anecdotes are related of the devices which he employed to obtain forgiveness by working on that vanity which was the queen's chief foible he succeeded in appeasing his indignant mistress so far as to procure his release and about the same time in fifteen ninety four she granted to him the valuable manor of Sherborne in Dorsetshire, but though she requited his services, she still forbade his appearance at court, where he now held the office of captain of the yeoman of the guard. Raleigh was peculiarly fitted to adorn a court by his imposing person, the graceful magnificence of his taste and habits, the elegance of his manners, and the interest of his conversation. These accomplishments were sure passports to the favor of Elizabeth, and he improved to the utmost the constant opportunities of intercourse with her which his post afforded, insomuch that except the earls of Leicester and Essex no one ever seems to have stood higher in her graces. But Elizabeth's jealousy on the subject of her favorites marriage is well known, and her anger was lasting in proportion to the value which she set on the incense of Raleigh's flattery. He retired, on his disgrace, to his new estate, in the improvement and embellishment of which he felt great interest. But though deeply alive to the beauties of nature, he had been too long trained to a life of ambition and adventure to rest contented in the tranquil routine of a country life, and during this period of seclusion, he again turned his thoughts to his favorite subject of American adventure and laid the scheme of his first expedition to Guiana, in search of the celebrated El Dorado, the fabled seat of inexhaustible wealth. Having fitted out with the assistance of other private persons a considerable fleet, Raleigh sailed from Plymouth February 6, 1595. He left his ships in the mouth of the River Orinoco and sailed four hundred miles into the interior in boats. It is to be recorded to his honor that he treated the Indians with great kindness, which contrasted with the savage conduct of the Spaniards, raised so friendly a feeling toward him that for years his return was eagerly expected, and at length was hailed with delight. The hardships of the undertaking and the natural advantages of the country which he explored are eloquently described in his own account of the discovery of Guiana. But the setting in of the rainy season rendered it necessary to return without having reached the promised land of wealth. And Raleigh reaped no other fruit of his adventure than a certain quantity of geographical knowledge and a full conviction of the importance of colonizing and taking possession of the newly discovered region. This continued through life to be his favorite scheme. But neither Elizabeth nor her successor could be induced to view it in the same favorable light. On reaching England, he found the Queen still unappeased, nor was he suffered to appear at court. And he complains in pathetic terms of the cold return with which his perils and losses were requited. But he was invested with the high command and the expedition of 1596, by which the Spanish fleet was destroyed in the harbor of Cadiz and to his judgment and temper in overruling the faulty schemes proposed by others the success of that enterprise was chiefly due indeed his services were perhaps too important and too justly appreciated by the public for his own interests for the great and general praise bestowed on him on this occasion tended to confirm a jealousy of long standing on the part of the commander-in-chief the earl of essex and it was probably owing to that favorite's influence that Raleigh was still forbidden the Queen's presence. Essex and the Secretary of State, Sir Robert Cecil, regarded each other with mutual distrust and dislike. Cecil and Raleigh were connected by ties of common interest, and, as the latter supposed, of friendship. Still, Raleigh found the interest of the minister too weak to serve his purpose, while the interest of the favorite was employed against him. And as the only method of effecting his own restoration to the Queen's favor, he undertook to work a reconciliation between these two powerful rivals. In this, he succeeded, to the great admiration of all spectators, and the fruit of his policy was seen in his readmission to the execution of his official duties at court, June 1st, 1597. In the following August, he was appointed rear-admiral in the expedition called the Island Voyage, of which Essex held the chief command. The slight successes which were obtained were again due to the military talents of Raleigh. The main objects of the voyage were lost through the earl's inexperience. From this time to the death of the queen, Raleigh enjoyed an uninterrupted course of favor. Elizabeth was now old. Cecil took no steps to diminish the high esteem in which she held Sir Walter Raleigh. But he secretly labored to prejudice her successor against him, and he succeeded to his wish very soon after the accession of james I, raleigh's post of captain of the guard was taken from him and his patent of wines was revoked though not without a nominal compensation being made to complete his ruin it was contrived to involve him in a charge of treason most writers have concurred in speaking of this passage of history as inexplicable it is the opinion of the last historian of raleigh mr titler that he has found sufficient evidence for regarding the whole plot as a device of Cecil, and he has supported this opinion by cogent arguments. Lord Cobham, a violent and ambitious but weak man, had engaged in private dealings with the Spanish ambassador, which brought him under the suspicion of the government. By a device of Cecil's, we here follow the account of Mr. Tytler, he was induced in a fit of anger, and in the belief that Raleigh had given information against him, to accuse Sir Walter himself of being privy to a conspiracy against the government. This charge Cobham retracted, confirmed, and retracted again, behaving in so equivocal a manner that no reliance whatever can be placed on any of his assertions. But as the king was afraid of Raleigh as much as the secretary hated him, this vague charge, unsupported by other evidence, was made sufficient to commit him to the tower and after being plied with private examinations in which nothing criminal could account of that memorable scene, we shall refer to Mr. Hardine's Criminal Trials, Volume 1. It is reported to have been said by one of the judges who presided over it on his deathbed that the justice of England has never been so degraded and injured as by the condemnation of Sir Walter Raleigh. The behavior of the victim himself was the object of universal admiration, for the tempered mixture of patience and noble spirit with which he bore the oppressive measure dealt to him. He had before been unpopular, but it was recorded by an eye witness that he behaved himself so worthily, so wisely, and so temperately, that in half a day the mind of all the company was changed from the extremest hate to the extremest pity. The sentence of death thus unfairly and disgracefully obtained was not immediately carried into execution james was not satisfied with the evidence adduced on the trial and believing at the same time that raleigh had been plotting against him he set his royal wit to dive into the mystery of the singular scene which the briton solomon devised it is not necessary to speak since raleigh was not an actor in it but as no more evidence could be obtained against him even by the king's sagacity, he was reprieved and remanded to the tower, where the next twelve years of his life were spent in confinement. Fortunately, he had never ceased to cultivate literature with a zeal not often found in the soldier and politician, and he now beguiled the tedium of his lot by an entire devotion to those studies which before had only served to diversify his more active and engrossing pursuits. Of his poetical talents, we have already made short mention. To the end of life, he continued the practice of pouring out his mind in verse, and there are several well-known and beautiful pieces expressive of his feelings in prison and in the anticipation of immediate death, especially The Lie and the beautiful little poem called The Pilgrimage. He also possessed a strong turn for mathematics and studied them with much success in the society, and under the guidance of his friend Thomas Harriot, one of the most accomplished mathematicians of the age. Chemistry was another favorite pursuit, in which, according to the standard of his contemporaries, he made great progress. But the most important occupation of his imprisonment was the composition of the history of the world. The work extends from the creation to the end of the Second Macedonian War. Raleigh meant to bring it down to modern times, but the untimely death of Henry, Prince of Wales, for whose use it was composed, deprived him of the spirit to proceed with so laborious an undertaking. He enjoyed the confidence of that generous youth in a remarkable degree, and maintained a close correspondence with him on civil, military, and naval subjects. Several discourses on these topics addressed to the Prince will be found in the editions of Raleigh's works. Henry repaid these services with sincere friendship and admiration, and we may presume that his advisor looked forward to that friendship, not only for a cessation of misfortune, but for a more brilliant period of favor and power than he had yet enjoyed. Fortunately, however, his patron's death was preceded by that of his arch-enemy, Cecil, and through the mediation of the Duke of Buckingham, Raleigh was released from the tower in March 1615 and obtained permission to follow up his long-cherished scheme of establishing a colony in Guiana, and working a gold mine, of which he had ascertained the existence and situation. The results of this disastrous voyage must be shortly given. Raleigh sailed March 28, 1617, and reached the coast of Guiana in November following. Being himself disabled by sickness from proceeding farther, he dispatched a party to the mine under the command of Captain Keymis an officer who had served in the former voyage to Guiana. But during the interval which had elapsed since Raleigh's first discovery of that country, the Spaniards had extended their settlements into it, and in particular had built a town called Santa Thome in the immediate neighborhood of the mine in question. James, with his usual duplicity, while he authorized the expedition, revealed every particular connected with it to the Spanish ambassador, the english therefore were expected in the orinoco and preparation had been made for repelling them by force Chemis and his men were unexpectedly attacked by the garrison of santa thome and a sharp contest ensued in which the english gained the advantage and burnt the town in this action raleigh's eldest son was killed the spaniards still occupied the passes to the mine and after an unsuccessful attempt to dislodge them Chimis abandoned the enterprise and returned to the ships. Raleigh's correspondence expresses in affecting terms his grief and indignation at this double misfortune, the loss of a brave and promising son, and the destruction of the hopes which he had founded on this long-cherished adventure. On his return to England, he found himself marked out for a victim to appease the resentment of the Spanish court, to which he had long been an object of fear and hatred. His conduct abroad had already been closely scrutinized in the hope of finding some act of piracy or unauthorized aggression against Spain for which he might be brought to trial. Both these hopes failing and his death in compliment to Spain being resolved on, it was determined to carry into effect the sentence passed 15 years before from which he had never been legally released and a warrant was accordingly issued to the judges requiring them to order execution. He insisted on the nature of his late commission, and on that plea being overruled, submitted with his usual calmness and dignity. The execution with indecent haste was ordered to take place on the following morning. In this last stage of life, his greatness of mind shone with even more than its usual luster. Calm and fearless without bravado, his behavior and speech express the piety and resignation of a christian with the habitual coolness of one who has braved death too often to shrink at its approach his farewell to his faithful wife was manly tender and most affecting the accounts of his deportment on the scaffold effectually refute the charges of irreligion and atheism which some writers have brought against him unless we make up our minds to believe him an accomplished hypocrite He spoke at considerable length, and his dying words have been faithfully reported. They contained a denial of all the serious offenses laid to his charge, and expressed his forgiveness of those even who had betrayed him under the mask of friendship. After delivering this address and spending some time in prayer, he laid his head on the block, and breathing a short private prayer, gave the signal to the executioner. Not being immediately obeyed, he partially raised his head and said, "'What dost thou fear? Strike, man!' and underwent the fatal blow without shrinking or alteration of position. He died in his sixty-sixth year. Raleigh sat in several parliaments and took an active part in the business of the House. His speeches, preserved in the journals, are said by Mr. Teitler, to be remarkable for an originality and freedom of thought far in advance of the time. His expression was varied and animated, and his powers of conversation remarkable. His person was dignified and handsome, and he excelled in bodily accomplishments and martial exercises. He was very fond of paintings and of music, and in literature, as in art, he possessed a cultivated and correct taste. He was one of those rare men who seemed qualified to excel in all pursuits alike, and his talents were set off by an extraordinary laboriousness and capacity of application. As a navigator, soldier, statesman, and historian, his name is intimately and honorably linked with one of the most brilliant periods of British history. End of section number 35. Recording by Dave Harrell, Rock Hill, South Carolina.